everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take the deepest look possible at what it means to be human. Today is episode number 36, and I have on Siobhan Sennier, who is a specialist in Native American literature, in sustainability, in women's issues, in a whole lot of things, the University of New Hampshire. So I just, uh, I just finished my call with Siobhan, and it was extraordinary. It was quite deep and wide-ranging, and I actually learned quite a bit. I took notes. I had some ideas for articles I want to write and research I want to do uh, precisely because we were sort of talking about uh, at this intersection of culture and how it impacts us and our relationship with one another and with our environments. I know that sounds very abstract, but it's very, very important. And Siobhan has a lot of, I think, very insightful things to say about how, from the Native perspective, uh, that sort of reflects unique things about our culture that need to be addressed, right? And so we talk about sustainability and we talk about something uh, she calls uh, negligibility and all of these different things where we're disconnected from each other and from the environment and uh, don't really care about things and don't enact uh, rituals the way humans have for many, many, many thousands of years. And it all, it results in uh, loss and, and a lot of actually quite negative things, I think, in terms of, um, our short attention spans and our distractibility and our anxieties and instabilities and all sorts of um, things that I'm constantly talking about as here. Uh, So it's, uh, yeah, I'm, this is all, it's quite important and I'm so honored. You know, I work very hard and I, I will say this later too. I work very hard on the podcast to always be having conversations that are intellectually rigorous and also fascinating and also uh, in touch with a wide variety of cultures and perspectives. And so I try really hard to have gender balance. That's really, it's a challenge. Um, I try really hard to get into discourses that I'm not often a part of, you know, about black culture and about native culture and and indigenous cultures and all these sorts of things. Uh, And hopefully, again, all of them sort of helping us get at this fundamental question of who we are, what our world is like, what we are doing about it, what we can be doing about it, um, and that sort of thing. So I think it's all really quite important. I mean, that's why I'm doing it, but it's all really quite important. And um, this conversation is great. I want to get right into it. So I'll read you a little bit about um, Siobhan. Uh, She has a bachelor's in English from Bowdoin, a master's in English, and a uh, PhD in American literature Uh, both at the University of Illinois uh, at Urbana-Champaign. And she is now, as I mentioned, at the University of New Hampshire. She uh, works in the uh, literature department, and she teaches both Native American literature and women's studies. She works in sustainability as well. And also, I think, um, quite excitingly for me, uh, she is the editor of a massive anthology, of native literature from the New England area called Donland Voices that I really love and will link to in the show notes. Uh, and also Donland Voices, Google it, uh, has a ongoing blog and website that's rich in materials um, that can sort of open up your world of, of reading that's in this 
from this culture and this genre that we hear, you know, quote unquote in the West never engage, but is, uh, can be really helpful for understanding um, the limits that, that we impose ourselves by only living within one culture. So I just, I so much do really recommend um, checking out all of those things. And thank you so much for tuning in. So I, I promise this will be an engaging and edifying episode. So let's uh, get to it. Here we are, Dr. Siobhan Sinier. <laughs> okay. Hi, welcome Siobhan. Hi. Hi, welcome. Um, I try not to talk about the weather when I bring on a guest, uh, but you're currently, you're you located in New Hampshire? Yes, I am. Yeah. It is so, very cold. Yes, I I did my undergrad at Dartmouth, and so oh, okay, uh, yeah, um, I happen to love it, and I do like to check in on how the weather is going whenever I talk to somebody who's in the area. So um, we're having a rare morning of sun. Okay, that's, I'm sorry, I'm keeping you inside. <laughs> but you're used to that at Oxford. Huh. Yeah, I the rain here is great. That's why everybody here is so productive because it rains all the time. <laughs> That's, that's the okay. secret. Oh, very good. Um, okay. So you, um, you kind of, you specialize in literature in native cultures in New England, right? Right. Okay. So can, uh, as a bit of intro of an introduction, can you tell us how you sort of got, got into that and what is it about that field that sort of drives you? Oh, sure. Um, I actually went to graduate school expecting to be a Thomas Hardy scholar, Okay. I still love that stuff. You know, those big Victorian lugubrious novels. But when I was in graduate school, I took a class on Native American literature and I got completely hooked. Hmm. Um, It just played by different rules. Interesting. Native American literature didn't think the same way about character or psychological interiority. It wasn't even the same in terms of plot. Hmm. And it was really, really good. So it kind of changed the way I thought about what constituted aesthetic pleasure. Um, And so I wound up writing a dissertation about Native American women and their protests against U.S. government policies of land allotment in the late 19th century. So very sort of arcane and specialized, but the United States government, in case all your listeners don't know, uh, pursuit of policy in the late 19th or into the early 20th centuries of dividing up reservation lands, which were communally held into individual parcels, 160 acres to be given to heads of family, male heads of family in the interest of assimilating everybody and turning them into yeoman farmers. Um, And it was a disaster. The policy was a disaster. Native Americans lost another two-thirds of what remained of their land base at that time because it just so happened that after you gave 160 acres to every head of family, there was a whole lot left over for immediate sale to white settlers. So, uh, and an interesting thing about Native American literature in that period is that the Native people who were writing and publishing had been through boarding schools off-reservation where they were forced to assimilate, eaten for speaking their languages. And so they tended to write as though they accepted assimilation. Uh, There's a scholar named Robert Warrior who has pointed out that 
late 19th century Native American literature tended not to produce the same kinds of controversies that, say, African-American literature at that period did, where you had this sort of big standoff between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, He says that most Native American writers of that period were interested in assimilation. And so I was sort of looking for traces of resistance to that in the work of Native American women writers long-winded explanation of the dissertation. And then I wound up getting this job at the University of New Hampshire, first at the University of Maine. My first job was in Farmington, Maine. And I was hired to teach Native American literature. And so I thought I should have a responsibility to teach the Native American literature of this region. And you went to Dartmouth, which was the home of Samson Occam, right? So founded as a Native American school. Uh, And the thing I kept getting told was that, well, there is no Native American literature up here, right? Except Samson Occam. People knew about this 18th century minister, Samson Occam, who had been Christianized and worked on the founding of Dartmouth College. And they knew about another 19th century Pequot minister named William Apes, who also wrote sermons um, and some protest literature. And then maybe people knew about a guy named Joseph Bruchak, who's a contemporary writer. He's Abenaki, who writes books faster than I can read them. He's just incredibly prolific. But then it was like, okay, there's no Native American literature in New England other than those three. And I knew that was a lie. Um, so, and I got tired of creating these Xeroxed course packets, you know, that we all had to do back then for our classes. Um, so I thought "Mm, I should put together an anthology of this writing. And I, I was trained in a model when I was in graduate school of literary recovery. You know, we find the writers who have been forgotten and we republish them to great acclaim. And so I sort of had this vision, you know, that I'd be going to the archives and searching and discovering all of these Native American writers, which, of course, you know, was an inadvisable term uh, when you're talking about a settler scholar working with Native American literature. And um, I, I learned really quickly that I wasn't going to find any of this literature without actually talking to Native American people. Um, which is not something I was trained to do. Um, Talking to people isn't necessarily something I even like to do. (laughs) I was a literary scholar, so I I went to do a PhD in literature for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had to talk to Native American communities, and and I found that they had incredibly rich memories of their literary traditions at the tribal level. So, you know, you visit Passamaquoddy people in Maine, And it's a small community of about 2,000, 2,500 people, but they remember who their writers are all the way back to the earliest times. And they keep them, you know, they keep these well-thumbed, sometimes Xeroxed copies of their writers. So that's actually kind of the backdoor by which I wound up getting into the topic of sustainability. I'm not even really uh, what we call an eco-critic you know, eco-critics sort of study what we used to call nature writing uh, or environmental literature or literature about environmental catastrophe. And then they look to scientists and people in other fields to help them answer those questions about how the literature is behaving. I, I really came to thinking about sustainability as an issue of how communities were taking care of literature 
um, because you're a philosopher, right? You know that the humanities are always in crisis um, and they're especially in crisis now, right? The sky is always falling. Literature is dying. Nobody's reading. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about making meaning anymore. And um, what are we going to do to preserve literary history? And it, it kind of, in the same way that Native American literature initially blew my mind about what I expected about aesthetics and the way literature ought to be and behave. Um, so too did Native American canon formation and canon preservation really change the way I thought about who's responsible for taking care of literature and stewarding literature and teaching literature and promoting literature and protecting it. What does literature really do? Um, mm. So that's a long-winded answer no, to your question. That's a thorough answer, which I thoroughly appreciate. Uh, I have, there were so many things you said that I found interesting there. I'd like to sort of walk back to the beginning mm -hmm. stay in literature for a little bit and then um, expand. So you mentioned that uh, there are different rules uh, by which this set of literature that you were uh, not discovering, but uh, coming into increased contact with, I suppose, um, mm -hmm. It plays by different rules. And I just, and you mentioned thinking about aesthetic pleasure differently. And I am really compelled by these questions for a number of reasons. But one of them is that we sort of walk around with these presumptions that literature or anything should be pleasurable in X, Y, and Z ways. And it really isn't until you encounter something totally you know, outside that system where you realize that you've actually been inside a system. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those different rules or the different kinds of pleasure that you sort of noticed you could experience. Mm -hmm. um, I distinctly remember the first book that professor in that literature class in grad school assigned was called The Trickster mm. by Paul Radin, which is actually an ethnographic collection of traditional oral stories about tricksters. And I remember taking that book on a camping trip and just rolling on the ground uh, because <laughs> I don't, I had been caught out, I think, in certain expectations I didn't know I had. I don't think I really signed up for that class thinking, oh, I'm going to get the primordial wisdom of the elders <laughs> or something. Mm -hmm. But I did not expect stories about Coyote removing his own body parts and ingesting them and farting and, you know, breaking things down and calling the world into being and then also being a total fool. Um, so at the level of plot, it didn't operate like a Thomas Hardy novel, right? <laughs> at the level of character, it didn't operate like a Thomas Hardy novel, right? There was no sort of mournful interiority, individual psyche, um, which I love, right? I, I still love that out of literature, but it wasn't in traditional indigenous literatures. That was not such a concern. Interesting. Um, and it's not like traditional psychological interiority is a concern of all Western literature either. Right. But it just, um, the literature was, was playing with my expectations that I did not know I had about indigenous literature. And it was also playing with my expectations about literature with a capital L. Mm -hmm. Some of it tended to be very repetitive too. If you think about oral traditions, right? it makes sense for an oral tradition mm -hmm. to repeat itself a lot. And what ethnographers used to do sometimes in the olden days, when they were writing down an oral story was they would edit it to eliminate repetition. Um, Paul Radin's book didn't do that. And some other ethnographers didn't do that. 
And so it forces, it forced me to think about even editing, even, even the act of editing and what a text ought to look like on the page versus how a text behaved when it was performed in community. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, um, I've actually done a lot of reading about oral cultures or like the field of orality. And I don't know how legitimate that is anymore, but I know it was at least a, a couple of decades ago. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, for my own personal edification, uh, what do you sort of think of those kinds of contrasts that have been drawn about the way like quote unquote oral literature and oral societies think um, and collect memories and all of that versus the way that it happens in societies that write everything down. So the really cool thing, so the old school Walter Ong theory, I think is that, you know, sort of orality precedes literacy. Yeah. I think the presumption of a lot of so-called salvage ethnography at the turn of the century was that we've got to write this stuff down to preserve it. If we don't write it down, it will be lost forever. And um, the really cool thing that I learned in the process of putting together this written anthology was that mm-hmm. oral is actually preserving the literate in many, in many cases. So there are cases where, say, uh, at the Narragansett tribe in Rhode Island, uh, some Narragansett tribal members in the 1930s published their own magazine during a period of revitalization they only did it for a year and a half. It was a tiny group of people. Nobody, almost nobody in that community or very few people in that community have copies of the magazine anymore, but every single person in that community remembers the magazine, mm. the Narragansett Dawn. And they even remember, they remember the name of the editor. They remember some of the content that was produced. So, so there's this really curious thing where instead of, the oral preceding the literate, there's like these interesting relays now between the oral and the literate where, you know, perhaps indigenous people in the 1930s wrote down a traditional story for a magazine, not necessarily thinking they were going to preserve it, but as a way of recirculating it. And it continues to recirculate orally a century later. And then a new Narragansett writer takes that same story that's been sort of carried along orally and puts it in a poem or puts it in a sci-fi novel. Um, So the oral and the literate are really talking to each other, I think more than Walter Ong and his crowd Hmm. thought about or understood. Okay. uh, Forgive me if I get too hypothetical, just tell me I'm too hypothetical and stop. Okay. You're a philosopher. so (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. So Um, I'm thinking about the volume, I'm thinking about the modern world and how we have, you know, now with the internet, have billions, right, of of texts and documents and pages. And um, I'm wondering if with a lower volume of cultural artifacts, people tend to revisit them more. But do you think that it's in the world today that we're sort of less attached to certain narratives or we let them go more quickly because our attention span is so short. Like how does that, can that provide insights into how we are today? Yeah. I mean, it's not, I've thought about this a lot, right? I mean, so these are communities that aren't at scale, right? The way we are. And even in the Academy, even if you think about the literary canon, you know, that you were supposed to know when you graduated Dartmouth and you were supposed to be very literate in, was more global 
and cosmopolitan, and some would say colonial, um, than a very small scale community oriented canon. So that poses a real problem. <laughs> that poses some real conundrums, right? For something like literary history, um, are we are we bemoaning? So sometimes I wonder, are we spending too much time bemoaning cultural loss, right? Whereas a smaller scale community might be better equipped with a smaller canon to preserve and share and sustain, if we use the concept of sustainability and sustain that literary mm -hmm. heritage. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I work in digital humanities a little bit too. And, you know, in digital humanities, there is a, there's great pressure to operate at scale and show that you have a very large corpus mm. of texts, right. That can then in turn be mined for, you know, so much data. And uh, the thing I have found in working with tribal communities on indigenous digital projects is they're not necessarily interested in scanning absolutely everything they have and uploading it to the internet so that it then becomes available. Like they're more interested in carefully curating one text mm. or one object. Um, so maybe it makes us think differently about scale. If that starts to answer your question. It does. I actually, I, I find that very insightful and interesting. I just, you know, today, there's so many things about the world today where it's like we're trying to return to something that we can't return to. Uh, and I like community size, I think, is one of those things. You know, we we see ourselves. We are the Internet in a way has sort of helped us create these uh, smaller communities or more niche communities. Uh, but on the other hand, they're constantly in flux because people can come and go as they please, right? You're not embedded in a local tradition. Right. And so in, in that sense, um, I, yes, I, I feel that there's, there's less anchoring. And as much as we might long for that stability and that anchoring, I don't see it really happening. Right. right. Um, sorry, we're just philosophically meandering. So, um, <laughs> Okay, so what? Let's tie some things together. You, we were talking about cultures and cultural sustainability. What are there linkages between cultural or there are there things we can learn um, about environmental stability and cultural stability? How do those sort of discourses uh, reflect one another if they do? The literature itself is think about stewardship as a fiduciary duty of care mm. right to um a land a community to kinship with other humans and other non-humans other than humans and the literature itself so whereas in the academy we tend to think about literature with a capital l as something that we analyze in a classroom mm -hmm. and appreciate aesthetically for indigenous people, um, at least in the cases I've read, the literature is not so divorced from everyday life and even everyday environmental concerns. So that what's important about a particular poem that's getting recited and remembered over time is in fact the connection to the local place, its shellfish, its waterways, its trees, um, 
so that the literature itself is helping the community to steward their particular place, but is also in turn something that is stewarded by the community and by that particular place. Mm. Um, so Passamaquoddy people have petroglyphs um, that are now being marked as a, as a preservation site. And that's sort of interesting to think about, you know, and they had this really cool Passamaquoddy petroglyph project where Passamaquoddy people got a grant to visit these petroglyphs, which are only accessible by canoe, I think. Um, they're on these rocks out in the ocean. And they had this really cool grant to create art around the petroglyphs and write poetry about the petroglyphs and songs about the petroglyphs. And that's, that's something sort of interesting because the, the rocks themselves become storytellers, become agents Mm. in the stewardship of this literary history and also of this environment, right? I mean, these rocks have survived for a very, very long time and they're expected to survive for a very, very long time. Um, mm. I don't know if that starts to answer your question. I think it's, I'm, I mean, it was a, it was not a great question. So I would, it's fine. That it's pretty good that it didn't. Uh, I actually, I find that um, really interesting in the humanities uh, today. I have done, I've spent a fair amount of time in affect theory and, and the like. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of theorists there tend to try to elevate the, what we might call like agency, you know, tend to elevate the, the relevance of things we normally don't think of as agents, right? Like rocks and uh, other things, everything in our environment. And I don't just mean the natural environment. I mean like things, right? Um, and so I actually, I find what you're saying to be really resonant with, uh, with that. And it's very interesting. Um, perhaps there is something about our tendency especially in, in this specific culture to like subject object distinct, you know, to, to sort of make ourselves distinct from the things around us. Whereas um, I think in probably a lot of other places in the world, there isn't quite the same tendency to separate ourselves from the rest of the world. Yeah. There's a fascinating article that uh, was written by a Métis woman from Canada named Zoe Todd mm -hmm. that gets a lot of circulation. And I, I can't remember the exact title but it's something like an indigenous feminist rant <laughs> on the so-called ontological turn mm. um, and she talks about going to see Bruno Latour talk and oh it's the great Bruno Latour and I'm gonna <laughs> learn all these great things and um, you know he his thesis to her winds up feeling like indigenous people have known this for millennia mm -hmm. like why are you why are you telling us that there's no distinction between nature and culture why are you telling us that objects and things and other than humans have agency? We have known this for millennia. Um, so that's a, a sort of emerging discourse in a lot of indigenous scholarship is that we've known these things for a long time. Um, and you're taking credit for our ideas without giving us genealogical credit. And uh, do you think, yes, I, I think that that's very important. Do you think that there's um, any kind of connection between that already knowing uh, that that community has about connectivity and sort of the same kind of wisdom they carry, they tend to carry and we tend to not carry about our relationships with the environment? I think the short answer to that question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> is there a long answer? Um, 
tell me more about how you're thinking about the relationship. Mm. Well, I think I have spent a fair amount of time trying to engage discourses where people think in a different, whatever, whatever ontological frame or trying to understand uh, how humans have, can relate uh, to one another and the environment um, in a variety of contexts. And so I see potential, right? I see something sort of potential. I also have a close friend who works in indigenous rights activism in Nepal. Uh, he's cool. Nepalese. And um, he has really influenced my thinking in terms of a quote unquote stewardship, right? In terms of uh, the sort of embedded wisdom that the groups that he works with have about how to coexist with the environment. Um, and it's been just intrinsic in their culture for a very long time because it's been very necessary. Um, and they see themselves as deeply embedded in these communities or as in their environments, right? It's very relational. They have relational relationships with the plants, relationships with the animals. Um, and that's sort of just very important. And so I do see sort of a, a link between this ethic of, um, reciprocity or caretaking yeah. and the yeah. the quote-unquote metaphysics of what you know we could call connectivity or something right um the reciprocity um principle is so interesting and important and it um right it, it points us back to the history of settler colonialism mm -hmm. so there's a, a really fantastic article by an aboriginal Australian writer named Alexis Wright, who has written quite a bit about climate change. And she has this article called Deep Weather. And I remember sharing it with a scientist recently. So the, the article starts by talking about a cyclone that hit the coast of North Queensland in 2011. And then it kind of moves into saying, you know, here we are in the midst of climate change and you all are freaking out like this is the apocalypse. Um, but indigenous people have already been through the apocalypse, <laughs> mm. right? So this is not new to us or unique to us. And don't you want to know about the traditional knowledge that we have had for millennia that has kept us alive in this place? And then she ends by saying, basically, you're not going to get it <laughs> from us. <laughs> you're not going to get it from us until you reset the button on the relationships between settlers and indigenous people, right? And she's, she ends by talking about treaties. And I remember giving this to a, a very earnest scientist who is, who's concerned about climate change and wants to write a grant, you know, collaborating with indigenous communities and wants to do the right thing. And she sort of finished this article. <laughs> but I wanted to know how they survived the cyclone. And that wasn't the purpose of that article, right? The purpose of the article was to reset the relationship between even the colonial reader um, right. and the indigenous author. So she performed the precise irony that was being pointed to. Right. <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And I think even the you know, you're talking about re whatever repairing or resetting that relationship. I don't know if it can be repaired. Resetting is better of uh, resetting that relationship. Um, but even the, the first step in that would be listening. Right. And, and of course. that is, you know, that that's not going to happen. Right. Not gonna happen. Right. That's another really um, 
challenging, you know, to sort circle back to where we started about questions of aesthetic pleasure. Mm. That was another really challenging thing for me about indigenous literature in the beginning is that I think I was trained as a graduate student to sort of have a thesis, right? <laughs> to critically unpack the text and to perform my various textual analyses on it and to have a thesis and the literature was resisting that mm. steadfastly, right? The literature was saying, let it alone, let it be. Um, and that's also challenging. I mean, it's challenging for literary scholars. It's challenging for any human being, mm-hmm. I think, in a communicative interaction. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, and this is maybe getting us a little farther afield, but I am consistently enraged by the uh, performativity of our academic discourses, right? Um, As opposed to, well, it's very hard. We almost need to like invent, often we need to like invent things to stay in order to stay relevant, you know, whereas this literature which exists and which moves through people in important ways and sure maybe we can analyze it in it however um that's that's uh, that's the important stuff and maybe we could just be pointing to it you know i sort of see us in the academy as aggregating all of these critical discourses and then like okay what do you, but what are you doing with them right you know what's um, your intervention what's your Exactly. And you can publish, you can even publish articles in journals about intervention, like all day long, but are you, you're still not intervening, which I think is interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to intervene, but I don't yeah. know, this is going to take me a while. It's going to take me a while. Um, okay. So, um, sustainability we we know that we live in a, in a uniquely we've sort of been talking around this but we know that we live in a uniquely sort of unsustainable world um can you maybe talk a little bit about um your or a native perspective on why the the world that we live in today the whatever modern west quote unquote that we live in today is so unsustainable um or is there writing in, in your literature that sort of reflects on this or can re- refract on it? I mean, it, it all actually points back to capitalism and colonialism, mm. right? <laughs> I mean, from an indigenous perspective, probably the answer is quite simple. Right. It's capitalism and colonialism have put us in this pickle. Um, you know, and capitalism and colonialism, yeah, I mean, this has been many, many centuries of an extractive economy, right? Extractive economies, economies that were designed to take things from the earth and from other humans, Mm -hmm. other human beings and other non-human beings, um, not only for survival, but for profit. Um, You know, again, I don't, there's there's a growing body of indigenous literature that says, that from their perspective, this is not necessarily unique. Um, it, it shows up even on indigenous Twitter, right? That we've already been through the apocalypse. Um, y'all are, you know, very upset about climate change, but you're right. I mean, on a certain level, there's no gainsaying that um, what's happening at the level of planetary crisis mm. feels really new um, and feels really unique. Um, I forget where this question started. <laughs> Uh, unsustainability and sort of the 
I don't know if it's like an addiction to excess or power. And I'm using addiction very loosely, of course, but, um, an attachment to, you know, these sort of maybe, maybe power is it or, or being so used to not having to make sacrifices for your relationality. Um, you know, like it, it, people are like, Oh my goodness, I would have to walk to the end of hall of the hallway to recycle. Like I actually, like I live with people who are, who are like that. I always have. You know, the recycling bins are at the, at the end of the hallway, so nobody does it. But if you right. want to be in front of them, they'll do it, right? And we have to, like, work very hard to try to trick each other in this world today um, or to, like, make it easy. We have to make everything easy, um, which I find, I find very interesting because I think, um, I think often in more sustainable local native cultures, what have you, um, they're this reciprocity is deeply embedded in the culture and really important, but it's not necessarily always easy, but people still do it. Right. And they also have ways of connecting themselves meaningfully. You know, if we think about your field and mine as places where we figure out how human beings make meaning of things and feel connected, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so some of the climate scientists that your friend Megan and I got to know are people, you know, at my university who feel like we've got all our data. <laughs> we, we've got really good data. We know what is going on here. And they're turning to humanities scholars saying, help us understand why human beings don't want to walk to the end of the hall to recycle. Um, help us understand how to help humans make meaning. Um, there's a philosopher we invited, maybe for show notes later, we can look this up, and I, I'm forgetting her name, but we invited a philosopher to talk about this very problem mm. at my university. And she had this coinage that I thought was very beguiling. It was called negligibility, mm. right? That people in today's fast-paced society, quote unquote, are so are so used to imagining things at such a global scale that it actually feels like it doesn't matter much whether I walk to the end of the hall and put the can in the recycling bin. And, you know, guess what? Now I've just learned that all of my recycling is contaminated and tainted anyway. So I've been putting it in these bins for years and it just wound up in a landfill anyway, that there's not, that human beings don't have a sense that their individual actions matter very much. Um, And, Probably, again, to return to the idea of smaller scale indigenous communities uh, who have routine forms of literature and even ceremony that tie them to a particular place and to Mm -hmm. particular other than humans in that place. Maybe we, like I hate to say we, because who's we, right? (laughs) But, you know, maybe in today's fast-paced modern world, like that's something we've lost. There's a beautiful book called Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know if you've seen it. That's um, getting a lot of buzz these days. And it's by a a Potawatomi biologist named Robin Wall Kimmerer. She'd actually be really interesting to interview on your podcast sometime. And um, there's a great chapter in that book where she talks about... So the book is largely about sustainability from an indigenous perspective. And she talks about the fact that she says, it's not that Western societies don't have ceremonies. They have things like birthday parties. They have things, they do have ceremonies that bring communities together, but they don't have ceremonies in the same ways that indigenous people had ceremonies where the entire community would go to the banks of a river for the salmon run. Mm. 
right? That's a very different kind of ritual and a very different um, relationality that is established with kin, human kin and other than human kin um, that may, that is hard to replicate in, I don't know, recycling prizes or, <laughs> or whatever, yeah. whatever you're trying to use to motivate people to recycle or reduce their carbon footprint. I mean, I'm part of a, a gimmick now that is trying to get us to all commute to work mm. on our bicycles. You know, we're in, you know what rural New Hampshire is like. It's actually really hard to ride your bicycle 15 miles to work, you know, when <laughs> on narrow roads with no bike lanes and lots of hills. In and the winter. <laughs> in the winter. And people don't want to log on to this different platform and make, you know, get points. Like, no. There, no. there needs to be some other mechanism for getting humans to access the meaningful nature. Mm. I think there's I think that there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying about the rituals I um there's this group of scholars that I actually work with pretty closely who try to promote what they call the evolutionary epic um which is uh basically using the evolution of life on earth but also the cosmos generally Mm -hmm. as like a quote-unquote naturalistic or scientific myth that could unite people, right? They want to sort of create some sort of environmental ethic out of wonder for what what has taken place in the universe so far. And obviously I tend to think that their ideas are are pretty good, but they're also not at all um, embedded, right? They're, They're not at all embedded in a culture. And ritual is so important for, you know, when we look at cultures throughout the world. And we're kind of, like you said, our rituals today are pretty weird. You know, you have like bar mitzvahs and weddings and funerals, you know, but you don't have people gathering on the banks of a river. Um, and that like really embeds you in a place and puts you in a relationship with it. And we just don't have that. And so I think part of the hesitancy that I've always felt about these, this evolutionary epic has actually been that it's, it's too a it's too abstract. It's too amorphous. It's not actually something that is relational. And I, I think we need people to sort of experience that relationship because once you do, like your friends, you take care of your friends. You know, I would like walk down the hall to visit my friend if she were crying. I wouldn't need her to like right. sit next to me, right? And so, if you're actually in in some sort of relationship, it's just a question of how to get or you know, how people feel as though they're actually in relationship with the natural environment. Right. Right. Cause something like, you know, gathering on the banks of a river for a salmon run even puts you in relationship with seasonal change. Mm-hmm. You know, so the thing where the thing that a lot of scientists are looking now at now in New Hampshire is how climate change is affecting the seasons and ultimately our tourist dollars. Right. I mean, the mm-hmm. leaves are not turning no. Uh, the way that they used to and the pond hockey, right? I mean, <laughs> pond hockey, which was, which was in a way a seasonal ritual that a lot of people around Lake Winnipesaukee enjoy is getting truncated now because the lake is not freezing over the way it used to. Um, so maybe, I don't know, is pond hockey our future? Like, <laughs> no, probably not. Cause we're not going to have any ice. We're not going to have any ice. I mean, you can like show people videos of polar bears standing on ice that's melting all day long. And we do that and people do care for like a day or a week. But I don't, I think if you're not in a relationship with that polar bear that's dying, you're, you're going to, it's going to get lost and 
the deluge of information and concerns that we have. Yeah. Mm. Wow. This is deep. I don't know. Is your po- yeah, it is deep. Is your podcast a way of, you know, t- intervening in that? You know, I'm thinking about like, the, mm. so the sustainability issue that's on my mind a lot lately because I'm now chair of a department and I have to go meet parents of prospective students. And, you wow. know, the one question they always have is what's my kid going to do with this degree in women's studies or English? And um, I know that I know that the parents are up front asking this question and I, you can see it so often the student is behind and the student wants four years of a meaningful life, mm. right? And the student wants to read, the student wants to do art, the student wants to do music and is frequently being told by the parents, it's not going to get you a job. Um, you know, so is something like creating this podcast an attempt to create a space for Mm. people to talk about what matters in a routinized way? Uh, Yes. um, It's trying to interview back on you, I realize. (laughs) No, it's, no, thank you. It's, uh, it's a few things. I want to be able to, I'm trying very hard to have um, conversations that are stimulating and both broad and deep and uh, I'm very interdisciplinary and so um, I I am and I have actually been able to now that I have done uh, several dozen of these I am seeing sort of interconnected threads in various yeah. fields you know in psychology and here in you know literature and all that sort of stuff and I think that that's really important because um, a lot of those conversations aren't happening and so that's a piece and also I just so strongly believe that we we need to we need to do a lot of things in public culture and um, I have been in the academy long enough you know and we need more people sort of building bridges or breaking down the walls of the academy and, and taking these conversations that we're having and, and making them public and also doing it in a way that's effective like it's so hard like <laughs> a it's very hard to be effective because I want to have nuance but people don't love nuance right and so <laughs> But I'm, but I'm, but I'm committed to it, and I, I think I have the tools necessary to try and, um, you know, make open-mindedness and nuance and care sexy. You know, uh, yeah. maybe maybe for the first time, like because it, I wouldn't say make, make it sexy again because it, it. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know when it was, you know, Aristotle or Plato, but, um, but yeah, I, I just I think it's I think it's really important that we try to sort of branch to have great discussions and then make them as accessible and engaging as possible. Um, I, I can't promise that I'm really engaging all the time. My, my poor listeners, you know, I, I do my best. Thank you all very much for your patience. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's important. Um, unfortunately, you know, the world is so massive. You can't, you have to pick your little piece that you're going to chip away at. Um, and, and I find that very heartbreaking and I'm probably trying to make my piece bigger than I should. Um, but it, it's hard, you know? Um, and, uh, there's this, uh, Christian theologian named, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. I don't yeah. know there's this quote yeah. that he has about like, um, you can't, it's beautiful and it's several sentences long, but it ends with like anything good cannot be ac- accomplished in one lifetime. And therefore you must be saved yeah. by, by love or whatever, by working together. Um, so that's beautiful. 
Um, yeah. And actually, I mean, I think it's one thing I have taken away from reading so much Native American literature, but also talking to Native American communities and seeing how they have preserved their own literature and their own literary traditions with or without the help of major libraries, collecting institutions, or even the academy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, right. (laughs) I actually, like, I don't think I will see the end of the humanities in my lifetime, but I I sincerely worry, I mean, a lot of us worry about it, right? A lot of us worry that the humanities are being downsized, you know, to um, just sort of this ancillary skill set for business people um, Mm -hmm. and engineers. Um, But whatever happens in the academy, you know, people are going to keep writing. People yeah. are going to keep writing. People are going to keep sharing their writing. People are going to keep saving their writing and preserving their writing and talking about their writing. And if, you know, the particular institutional forms that I have personally cherished, you know, for doing all of those things evaporate, literary art won't. Um, so that's kind of a hopeful thing, I think. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. And I also, like, I do really believe that as flawed and horrible, you know, like wretchedly horrible we can be as a species, I don't think we would have made it, you know, the last 12,000 years if we weren't like at least slightly more good and slightly more caring and slightly more cooperative than we are bad. You know, maybe it's like 5248, but I do, I do think that's real. Um, we have resilience there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes. And unfortunately I think our best selves come out when we're, um, when we're in our crisis, when we're in crisis. And so, um, not until we're in pain, right. Not until (laughs) do our best selves come out. Right. Yeah. So anyway, it's probably forthcoming. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm ready. Um, Okay, so we're we're kind of coming up on time. Do you have anything that you would like to sort of reflect on? Do you have any ideas lingering before we go? Mm, I don't. I mean, I always want to talk about academic labor, but we don't have to talk about that because <laughs> that's depressing. I mean, I guess the other, you well, know, let's you talk can, about it. Well, let's talk about it. <laughs> let's go. Here we go. <laughs> um, you know, from a stewardship standpoint. Mm-hmm. I feel like we need to be training people. We need to be training people to care, right? About ideas in your field, about texts in my field, about art. Um, And I really, with what has happened in the academic job market, I worry about generations of scholarship that has already been lost. Mm -hmm. Um, I worry about the exploitation of human beings in fields that are supposed to be humanistic. Mm. Um, you know, this kind of sounds like it's in contradiction to what I said earlier that, you know, even if the Academy totally collapses, <laughs> there will still be people who care and do it. Right. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean it's not painful to watch and, um, that it's not incredibly bothersome to see. Um, mm. Yeah. I, uh, the academy as it's currently constructed is unsustainable. Right. Talk about a theme of sustainability. Yeah, it 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 really is. Um something something is going to give soon. I don't know what that is, you know, or maybe it will be a long time and people will continue to be 
you know, radically overworked and underpaid. Um, But who knows? I mean, maybe people will enroll in college less, you know, maybe the demand for that. I don't know. I don't know. The landscape changes so quickly. Maybe we'll have artificial intelligence and nobody will have to go to school again ever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but, but even then, right, even in that instance, the humanities would remain relevant. And I think that they... I think that they will remain relevant in large part because critical discourse has been so important to our political landscape recently. You know, I just, I don't, I don't see the humanities going away because I see, I, because I see them being advantageous to certain people's political agendas probably, which is the only reason things survive. Right. I just, um, things survive when they, when they serve people's power. Um, unfortunately I think the humanities, at least in some sense, you know, the, the feminist discourses and the um, colonial, you know, the colonialist discourses have been very important. Those have all come out, come out of the humanities. Right, right. And so I, I think that torch will be carried forward, um, even if it's, again, under unideal, unideal conditions. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, more on which and non, I suppose. <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Siobhan. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. I love your podcast. I love <laughs> Thank what you're you, doing with too. it. Right? It's, it's public humanities. It's public humanities, and I love it. Mm. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, okay. Uh, thank you. Um, what is the, um, the anthology called again that you have published? It's so called Donland Voices. It's in a book form uh, that's massive. It's 700 pages. Wow. Uh, available on a, on a nefarious online bookseller near you or your local bookstore um, can order it. And then there's also um, an evolving, is it sustainable? Um, an evolving online literary magazine, donlandvoices.org, mm. um, that we continue to use to amplify the original book anthology. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of resources. I've actually been to that website and uh, read some of the blogs and it was actually really, really great. So I do okay. recommend it. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. So do check out those things. I'll put some links in the show notes. Um, And uh, yeah, thank you again, Siobhan. And thank you everybody for tuning in. You know where to find me. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm everywhere because that's the world today. So uh, thanks again. And I'll talk to you next week.